Well, as you survey the New Testament, as I'm sure many of you have, it's easy to see that Jesus made history's most radical claims. Even a cursory reading of the four Gospels reveals that Jesus claimed to be a whole lot more than a good teacher or spiritual leader or a prophet. Search the writings of the world's religions and you'll never read anything like Jesus' claims on the lips of Buddha, uh, Muhammad, Confucius, Joseph Smith, or you name the founder of a world religion. But anyone could say the things Jesus said. Saying those things doesn't necessarily mean they're true. And of course, Jesus realized that was the case. So Jesus didn't just make the claims that he made and expect everyone to believe those claims. He backed up what he said by fulfilling hundreds of Old Testament prophecies, uh, living a sinless life, opening the eyes of the blind, healing lepers, opening the ears of the deaf, causing the lame to walk, casting out demons, feeding thousands of people on one occasion with just a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, just to mention a few of his miracles. But for some of his critics, these miracles were not enough. Look at Matthew chapter 12 with me, verse 38. Matthew writes this, he says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. As if these miracles he had already been performing were not enough. So Jesus graciously promised them one more sign. Two verses down in verse 40, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus here, of course, was speaking about his impending death and resurrection three days later. Well, as you Bible students know, Jesus was Executed, just as Daniel 9, 26 and Isaiah 53 prophesied would happen to the Messiah 600 years earlier. And then, as you know, an amazing thing happened. Three days later, Jesus' tomb was empty. Jesus rose from the dead, just as he and biblical prophets foretold. In Psalm 16, verse 10, and Isaiah 53, verse 10. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a monumental event. For, among other things, it helped to prove that Jesus truly was the long-expected Savior, whom the prophets in the Old Testament had been foretelling, prophesying about, saying that one day a Savior was coming into the world to make a way for sinful humanity to be reconciled back into a right relationship with God. But can an intelligent person living in the 21st century today really be confident Jesus rose from the grave 2,000 years ago? 
I believe the answer is yes. And because we're just two weeks away from celebrating Jesus' resurrection, I want to share with you today five reasons I believe Jesus' resurrection actually took place. Five reasons I believe in the resurrection and five reasons I believe you can be confident in the resurrection as well. If you'd like to recall any of these reasons that we'll be discussing this morning in conversations with coworkers or friends uh, in the days ahead, you might be able to more easily recall them with this acronym we'll walk through, RISEN, R-I-S-E-N. Each one of those letters will help you remember one of our five lines of evidences we'll discuss here today. So, the first reason I believe Jesus conquered death and is a fact of history is this, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. The rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. It is an accepted historical fact that the Christian faith, a religion built upon the preaching of the resurrection of its leader, originated in approximately A.D. 32, right in the very city of Jerusalem, where Jesus was publicly crucified and buried. Now, this in itself is a good piece of evidence that the resurrection actually occurred. Why is that? Well, because a message calling people to repent and put their faith in a risen man could never have gained any substantial following amongst the Jews if the tomb had not actually been empty and had the Jewish people not seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion. The message of a risen man could not have been maintained a moment in Jerusalem if the grave was still occupied. Remember, Jesus' disciples did not run off to Athens or Rome to preach that Christ rose from the dead, where the facts could not be verified. No, they went right back to the city of Jerusalem, where they would have been quickly exposed and disproved if what they were teaching was false. The critics could have exposed the disciples as liars, and Christianity would never have gotten off the ground. They could have said, hey, here's the grave, and here's his body, and squashed the whole movement. But that never happened. And not only did Christianity originate in Jerusalem, it thrived there. Luke, whose writings have been confirmed now by numerous extra-biblical writings and dozens of archaeological discoveries, tells us that 3,000 people believed the first post-resurrection sermon preached just a few minutes' walk from the tomb. He talks about that in Acts chapter 2. By Acts chapter 4, Luke declares that there were 5,000 believers comprising the early Christian church in the city of Jerusalem. That would be considered a mega church even today. 5,000 people making up the church in the city of Jerusalem. By Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke says the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, apparently 
having lost count of how large the church had grown. And not only did Christianity originate and flourish in Jerusalem, it went on to triumph over a number of competing ideologies and even eventually overwhelmed the entire Roman Empire. By the early 4th century, when the Roman Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity, historians say there were around 30 million Christians. 30 million. Question for you. Is it reasonable to suppose that thousands of people within those early days following Jesus' death were actually deceived into believing a man rose from the dead? I don't think so. Think through this with me. Most of us have seen John F. Kennedy's assassination on TV or archived on the Internet. How hard would it have been in the weeks following that tragic event to convince hundreds of people in the city of Dallas who were there and saw JFK die that he came back to life after he was buried? Pretty much impossible, right? You might convince one or two people but you'd have an incredibly hard time convincing hundreds of people, let alone thousands. Why is that? Well, people don't rise from the grave. Well, the same was true in first century Jerusalem. People did not rise from the grave. And yet, in the days immediately following Jesus' public crucifixion, a crucifixion verified by Roman and Jewish historians. Outside the New Testament, thousands of Jews who lived there in Jerusalem and who knew Jesus had died suddenly converted to Christianity, convinced Jesus rose from the grave. The best explanation for the immediate rise of the early church right in the midst of a community that had witnessed his crucifixion is the resurrection. People had seen Jesus. It wasn't just a handful of disciples who saw him. No, Luke explains to us in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them, appearing to hundreds of them at a time, Paul goes on to say elsewhere, over a period of 40 days. Jesus didn't just rise from the grave and ascend to heaven. He spent 40 days interacting with hundreds of people. Well, that's what helped catapult New Testament Christianity into existence right there in the very city where people had witnessed his death. So the first reason I believe Jesus rose from the grave is the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. Now, the skeptic objects. He says, hold on a second, Charlie. I mean, Islam came on the scene 600 years after Jesus and grew rather quickly. Well, yes, it did. But Muhammad, the founder of Islam, didn't call on people to believe in the resurrection of a dead man. Convincing people a crucified man has come back to life is enormously more challenging than just telling people to believe in Allah. 
And truth be told, the real reason Islam spread so rapidly had nothing to do with people witnessing anything miraculous. Muhammad never performed a single miracle, as Muslims will attest. Islam was forced upon tens of millions by military conquest. It is an undeniable fact of history that Islam spread by the sword. That's far different than the spread of Christianity. Christianity spread over the first three centuries through the simple preaching of the gospel, calling on people to repent and place their faith in a resurrected Savior. In fact, it was the Christians who were being put to death as they took that message out to the Roman Empire. And that leads me to a second line of evidence for the resurrection. Number two, if you're taking notes, the I in our acronym RISEN reminds us of the incredible persecution and deaths endured by the disciples. The incredible persecution and deaths endured by the disciples. I talked about this a bit a couple of years ago in a previous teaching, but I think it bears some repeating here, seeing how closely it's connected to this topic. When Jesus was arrested and led away to be crucified, the Gospels tell us that his disciples fled in fear. They went into hiding and had even lost hope. A short time later, though, we read that something amazing happened. These same fearful men went through a dramatic transformation. Within a few weeks of Jesus' crucifixion, these same men were standing face to face with the very people who had crucified their leader, preaching to them that Jesus was alive, telling people that they needed to turn from their wicked ways and know that Jesus was both the Messiah and Lord. To prevent this belief from spreading, the same authorities who had Jesus crucified threatened the disciples, flogged them, beat them, imprisoned them, and forbade them to speak the name of Jesus. Acts, uh, or Luke discusses this in the book of Acts. So what did the disciples do? Well, they got back up and said to the Jewish leaders, we must obey God rather than men. I love their courage and their commitment to getting the gospel out. The church today needs more of that. But the disciples' courage had a cost, a large cost, but one they were willing to pay. Flavius Josephus, um, Eusebius, Tertullian, and other independent extra-biblical sources record for us that many of Jesus' earliest followers, including the apostles, suffered intense persecution and even death for their ongoing belief in preaching that Jesus was Lord and was risen from the dead. We're told in these accounts outside of the New Testament that Matthew, the author of the Gospel of Matthew, was slain with an ax in Ethiopia. We're told that Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, died in the city of Alexandria in northern Egypt after having been cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. 
We're told that Luke was hung to death on an olive tree in Greece. John, we're told, was tortured and banished to the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. We're told that James, the brother of John, was beheaded in the city of Jerusalem. Luke describes this murder as well in Acts chapter 12. We're told that Philip was hung up against a pillar in the city of Hierapolis and then stoned to death. Bartholomew flayed alive. Jude shot to death with arrows. Andrew bound to a cross and then just left there to die. We're told that Barnabas was stoned to death. Paul beheaded with a sword in the city of Rome. We're told that Thomas, former skeptic of the resurrection, was run through the body with a spear in southeast India. And we're told that Peter was crucified in Rome upside down. Very sobering. Question for you. Is it reasonable to think these men were lying about the resurrection? I find it difficult to believe these men made up a story about Jesus only to bring upon themselves years of persecution, imprisonments, and ultimately these kinds of deaths. Nobody lies to get themselves into these kinds of predicaments. People lie to get out of these kinds of predicaments. Well, the fact that these men laid down their lives unwilling to recant or admit falsehood in the face of beatings, stonings, and torture is another evidence that the resurrection actually took place. So, the first reason you can be confident Jesus rose from the grave, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. Number two, the incredible persecution and deaths endured by the disciples. Let's consider a third line of evidence for the resurrection, the S in our acronym, the shift in beliefs and practices by thousands of Jews. The shift in beliefs and practices by thousands of Jews. What am I talking about? Well, shortly after Jesus' death, thousands of Jews in Jerusalem and the surrounding region began abandoning at least five cherished beliefs and practices. The beliefs and practices they abandoned had been taught to them from childhood by their rabbis and parents. They were beliefs and practices that had given them their national identity and had allowed them to be accepted by society. They were beliefs and practices that had even given them a supposed right relationship or right standing with God himself. What beliefs and practices did thousands of Jews begin to abandon? Well, A, the practice of bringing sacrifices to the temple. The practice of bringing sacrifices to the temple. Thousands of Jews who had for centuries been going to the temple to sacrifice animals as a way of having their sins covered suddenly stopped. Why? What would explain such a major shift in behavior? Well, they realized that Jesus was the Lamb of God 
who takes away once and for all the sins of the world. They realized that all those Old Testament sacrifices were only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, a foreshadowing of what God would accomplish through his son's death. They they had heard of, if not even seen with their own eyes, the veil that had been ripped miraculously from the top down there in the temple. They remembered that Jesus had told them that the temple was even going to be destroyed one day. And so they realized things had radically changed. They realized they were living under a new covenant with God. If they were mistaken, abandoning the sacrificial system would jeopardize not only their well-being socially, but spiritually with their relationship with God. And yet thousands of Jews began to do that very thing. And they didn't stop there. Thousands of Jews began to change, be their Sabbath day worship from Saturdays to Sundays. Their Sabbath day worship from Saturdays to Sundays. The Sabbath, of course, for the Jews was not only a day they were to rest from physical labor. It became a day when the Jews would meet together in the synagogue, worship God together, and study the scriptures. They had been doing it on the seventh day of the week for some 1,500 years years. But now, almost overnight, thousands of Jews began meeting on a new day, the first day of the week, a day they began to call the Lord's Day. Why did they call it the Lord's Day? Well, because that was the day of the week Jesus rose from the dead. So thousands of Jews, including the disciples, said, let's start meeting on that day in commemoration of our risen Lord. And they even opened up their meetings to Gentiles, non-Jews. These Jews who made up the early church believed that the coming of the Messiah, along with his death and resurrection, cleared the way for a new relationship with God one that was based not on bringing sacrifices to the temple or on keeping the Mosaic law, but on the sin-bearing, life-giving help of a resurrected Savior. The fact that so many Jews were willing to abandon their previous beliefs and practices is a third evidence that Jesus' resurrection really took place. Now, obviously, a lot more could be said about this. If you'd like to learn more about some of these beliefs and practices that uh, the Jews abandon, uh, Lee Strobel talks about them uh, in his book, The Case for Christ. Many of you have probably seen the movie. I don't know how many of you have read the book. The book's much better. Ever heard that before? Uh, The book's more in depth, much more in depth than the movie. And I highly recommend it. It's it's an award-winning classic now. And then we also treat this uh, more in-depthly on our website at alwaysbeready.com. 
So the first reason you can be confident in the resurrection, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. Number two, the incredible persecution and deaths endured by the disciples. Number three, the shift in beliefs and practices by thousands of Jews. Number four, the E in our acronym, RISEN. The evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. The evidence for the trustworthiness of the Bible. The account of the resurrection was not passed down to us in a supermarket tabloid or uh, via a long chain of people playing the telephone game. No, it was passed down to us in a sober-minded collection of historical documents that were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life in the first century A.D. This collection of documents making up the New Testament has been validated by a wealth of different evidences, fulfilled prophecies, scientific discoveries, extra-biblical historical sources, uh, manuscript evidence, and archaeological discoveries. I talked about these different lines of evidence for the Bible just two years ago here on a Sunday morning, so I'm not going to elaborate on those again here today. If you weren't here for that presentation, I do have DVDs and books uh, out in the courtyard today that can bring you up to speed on those. But let's consider a final reason we can be confident Jesus rose from the grave. This would be our fifth pool of evidence, and we'll spend a little bit of time on this. This would be the N in our acronym, risen. And that reminds us of this. None of the skeptics' theories for the empty tomb are convincing. None. None. Even skeptical scholars today acknowledge that the tomb of Jesus was empty. As I mentioned earlier, there is no way Christianity could have ever gotten off the ground if Jesus' tomb was still occupied. The Roman authorities or Jewish leaders could have just gone to the tomb and paraded the body around downtown Jerusalem for everyone to see and squashed the whole movement. So the tomb was empty. That's widely acknowledged by historians today, even critical historians who uh, have no confidence in the New Testament, will acknowledge that Jesus' tomb had to have been empty. But these critics come up with other theories to explain the empty tomb, none of which are convincing. Let's briefly consider a few of their theories. The first theory is this, that Jesus is a myth theory. Uh, some critics of the Bible say the reason why his tomb was empty is because he never even existed. The whole story about him being a real person was made up by some deceitful men back in the first century. Well, the claim that Jesus is just a myth is ludicrous. Uh, why is that? Well, Jesus is referred to by 30 or more authors outside of the Bible within 150 years of his life. Some of these sources include first century historians like Flavius Josephus or the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus or another Roman historian by the name of Suetonius. The Jews mentioned Jesus in their collection of writings known as the Talmud. So the evidence for his existence is very strong. Even Bart Ehrman, one of the most zealous critics of the Bible alive today, acknowledges that Jesus was a real historical person. He said this, he said, there is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics 
ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, or any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. With respect to Jesus, we have numerous independent accounts of his life, sources that originated in Jesus' native tongue and that can be dated to within just a year or two of his life. Historical sources like that are pretty astounding for an ancient figure of any kind. The claim that Jesus was simply made up falters on every ground, end quote. So the Jesus is a myth theory utterly fails as an explanation for the empty tomb. Surely he did exist. A second theory to explain the empty tomb is what's called the stolen body theory. The stolen body theory. This theory suggests that the tomb was empty in Jerusalem because Jesus' disciples came in the middle of the night and stole Jesus' body. But the stolen body theory raises some difficult questions. How could the disciples have stolen the body? That would have required sneaking past an armed and trained detachment of Roman soldiers, breaking the Roman seal that was put upon the stone, then moving a two-ton stone away from the entry to the tomb without being detected. Certainly, the Roman guards that Pilate put on guard at the tomb to prevent this kind of thing from happening would have heard something and quickly put an end to the attempted thievery. Roman soldiers, according to accounts outside of the Bible, were highly trained in the art of defense and killing. Can you imagine a band of fishermen trying to take on a band of Roman soldiers? Suicide mission. Not going to work. And I find it hard to believe that the disciples who fled in fear when Jesus was arrested would even risk their lives trying to steal a dead body from the very people who had just three days earlier executed their leader. Another difficult question the stolen body theory brings up is this. Why would the disciples steal Jesus' body? what, What benefit? would come to them for doing that. Is it reasonable to believe the disciples stole Jesus' body only to suffer for, a, for preaching a message that they had contrived? Well, I have a very hard time believing that. So I find the stolen body theory utterly unconvincing. A third theory for the empty tomb is what's called the lost tomb theory. The Lost Tomb Theory. In 2007, the Discovery Channel aired a documentary called The Lost Tomb of Jesus that claimed the actual tomb that contained Jesus' bones had been discovered. The primary evidence for this radical conclusion was the discovery of six bone ossuaries, bone boxes, found in a grave in Jerusalem. The ossuaries dated back to the first century and had the following names engraved on them. Jesus, son of Joseph. Mary, Matthew, Joseph, another Mary, and number six, Judah, son of Jesus. Well, those names sound familiar, don't they? 
And so the men who put the documentary together concluded these ossuaries belonged to the very persons mentioned by those names in the New Testament. And thus they concluded the whole story of Jesus' resurrection was just a farce. He was actually, they say, married to Mary Magdalene, had a son named Judah, and was buried in a grave with the rest of his family. It sounded like part two to the Da Vinci Code book, uh, if any of you are around to have read that some years back. Well, their conclusions were immediately blasted by scholars from every end of the spectrum, Christian and non-Christian, and there are numerous reasons why archaeologists and historians quickly dismissed their outrageous claims. Let me just quickly mention two. First, the names inscribed on the ossuaries found in the tomb in Jerusalem were very common names in Israel in the first century. Uh, researchers have collected all kinds of data and have made lists of what the most popular names were in Jesus' day. Joseph was the second most popular name in Israel in the first century. Jesus was the fourth most popular name. Matthew was the sixth. And among women, Mary was far and away the most popular woman's name. So that being the case, a tomb with some ossuaries mentioning Jesus, Joseph, Matthew, and Mary is not sufficient proof that the cave was the burial site of Jesus of Nazareth. Archaeologists have pointed out that there are more than 900 buried tombs just like the alleged Jesus tomb within a two-mile radius of where this tomb was found. And of these tombs, 71 bear the name Jesus. And the name Jesus, son of Joseph, has now been found on three or four different ossuaries. So these were very common names. That's one strike against the supposed discovery. Another blow to the documentary's conclusions is this. If the disciples were making up a religion and basing it on the resurrection of Jesus, they would not bury his body in the very city that he was put to death, then inscribe his name on the outside of his ossuary, and then years later bury the other members of his family in marked ossuaries in the same grave. That would be foolish. You would get rid of the body, destroy it somehow. Then you could more safely move about the city lying to people and saying our leader has risen. So those are just a couple of the problems with the lost tomb theory. A fourth and final theory to explain the empty tomb is what's called the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory. This theory suggests that the early Christians were just hallucinating and only thought they had seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion. Well, this theory is not convincing either for uh, a variety of reasons. Hallucinations are very rare, and they vary greatly. You may know an individual who has hallucinated while using LSD or some other drug, but you never hear of a large group of people having identical hallucinations. That's, that's not how they work. They're individual experiences. 
Not, from, not that I speak from experience. <laughs> Several years ago, back in the late 80s, early 1990s, I worked at a surf shop in Carlsbad, an hour south of here or so. And when I worked at that surf shop, there was a man, a scraggly, wandering drug addict who would stop by the shop about once a month or so and talk to me about the aliens that were taking over the city of Carlsbad, uh, infiltrating. He had seen them land and their UFOs and appeared to him and talked to him. He had some crazy stories. And, and I think it was the drugs that were, were causing the hallucinations. But he was all alone. There was never anyone else with him vouching for the alien invasion of Carlsbad and the things that, that he was saying. No one else ever seemed to see those things. And for good reason. Hallucinations are rare. And when a person experiences one, rarely, if ever, is it identical to the hallucination other people are having. Now, back to Israel in the first century AD. Here are hundreds of Jews in Israel in the first century claiming to have seen Jesus alive after his crucifixion, to have even touched his scars, to have heard him teach, and to have even eaten meals with him. If there were only one or two of them making that claim, then we would probably chalk up the sightings to hallucination. But there were more than 500 people who had seen Jesus alive during the 40 days following his resurrection. That, to me, rules out the possibility of hallucinations. Hallucinations don't happen that way. When Paul mentions the 500-plus people who had seen Jesus alive after his resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, he says most of them are still alive. He was implying to the Corinthians that they were still available for questioning. In other words, Paul says, if you don't believe me, you can talk to them. Hundreds of them are still alive. Who saw him also? So the first blow to the hallucination theory is that hallucinations are rare. Second, they vary greatly. A third factor that rules out the theory is that hallucinations are typically the result of mental disorders, schizophrenia or drug use. But friends, the New Testament documents are so sane, so full of virtuous counsel, so rich in wisdom, so accurate down to minute historical details. Surely these are the words of men with sound minds. I have a hard time believing that the New Testament documents were penned by men who struggled with drug addictions and mental disorders like schizophrenia. And one final problem with the hallucination theory, if the disciples were just hallucinating, the Jewish leaders could have dragged Jesus' body out of the tomb and exposed the fact. But they could not do that because the tomb was empty. This is the fifth reason you can be confident Jesus rose from the grave, none of the skeptics' theories for the empty tomb are convincing. Friends, at this very hour, 
the ashes of the body of Siddhartha Gautama, now known as the Buddha, lie in a grave at the foot of the Himalayan mountains. Muhammad, the founder of Islam, is buried in Medina, Saudi Arabia. Joseph Smith is buried in Nauvoo, Illinois. Charles Darwin, buried at Westminster Abbey in London. These men are all dead and their graves are occupied. Only Jesus Christ proved that what he said was true by rising from the dead. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Your savior, the one you follow, is alive. You're not following the teachings of some dead man. No, you are walking through this life with Jesus, the true and living God who can be known, called upon, and trusted daily. And so I urge you to do that. Get to know your Savior. Call upon him often. Trust him. Enjoy a relationship with him. He loves you and he created you so that you might know him, not only in the afterlife, but in this life. If you are yet to have placed your faith in Jesus, I want to urge you to do that today. You can pray something like, God, forgive me for my sins. I I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life and be my Lord and Savior. If you'll call out to God and place your faith in Jesus, he'll do that very thing. He'll save you. He'll forgive you for your sins. Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Not only will you be saved from spending eternity in hell, you'll enjoy everlasting life in God's kingdom, and man, is it going to be awesome. Will you be there with us? I hope so. Amen.